Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Joe Lambert of Joe Lambert Mastering. And if you're not familiar with him, Joe is a mastering engineer out of New York who has worked with artists such as Lindsey Sterling, The Black Crows, Sharon Van Netten, The National, Deer Hunter, The B-52s, Animal Collective, and so many more. And in this episode today, we talk all things mastering, and Joe is just a complete open book when it comes to his process here. And because of that, I think you're going to get a ton of great information. We talk about everything from how he analyzes his songs to the process that he follows and the gear that he likes to use and what decisions he likes to make throughout the entire process, all the way from you know what gear he's choosing to what levels he's ultimately making his master set to, so that not only do they sound competitive, but they match the artist's vision and that they do translate well across different platforms. And we get into the debate about, you know, what is the industry standard these days when it comes to levels as far as mastering goes? Because it seems like today it's kind of like the Wild West out there when it comes to levels. And you got Spotify telling you you should have your levels at one thing and then another platform telling you you should do it at this level. And, you know, it it can get very overwhelming. So I was curious to get Joe's opinion on how he approaches loudness in his masters and what levels he ultimately would prefer to hear things at. So like I said, this is a great episode if you're learning about mastering and you're not sure of what the process is and what's involved, or even if you don't really care about mastering things on your own, but you're just curious to know what kind of things is a mastering engineer going to do with my mixes. This is going to be a great episode for you. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Joe Lambert, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going? It's going very well. Thank you. Amazing. Good to see you. Thank you. For people who might not be familiar with you and what you do, can you give us that background on who you are, what you do, and ultimately how you got into this? Well, as you said, my name is Joe Lambert. I'm a mastering engineer in uh, Portland Manor, New York. I've started my own company about 15 years ago called Joe Lambert Mastering. And I originally started it in Brooklyn, New York, and I've been working as a mastering engineer pretty much exclusively since the late 90s. You know, I started off like most people in the recording, well, a lot of people anyway, in the recording engineering world. I'm a lifelong musician. I've played guitar my whole life. I made a living as a guitar player for a while, Uh, still play. and you know, played in bands my whole life. And that's what I thought I was going to end up doing. And to make a long story short, I ended up uh, going the engineer route. Yeah. So I went to college and then after college, you know, after working a few jobs and touring as a guitarist, I went back uh, to get a recording engineering degree from Full Sail. And that got me pointed in the right direction. And then I moved, uh, to the city you know, a couple of weeks after and i've you know basically been there up until two years ago when we moved up here about 45 minutes north and uh i work on all kinds of music you know i i do i've had several grammy nominations for classical records i've had a couple electronic electronica records that were nominated uh i do a lot of indie rock you know 
obviously being in the Brooklyn area in the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, there was just a lot of indie rock and still to this day, that's just a big chunk of what I do. Uh, but thankfully I'm, I'm lucky that I get a really wide variety, which is very fun for me and keeps it interesting. For sure. Yeah. And that's what I do uh, most days. That's awesome. Yeah, as far as the uh, the variety, I mean, there's some people that just like to stick to one lane and be known for one thing. And then yeah. it seems like mastering engineers are, are definitely the most flexible group of, of engineers who just take on lots of different projects. I think you have to be uh, maybe, like you said, maybe more so as a mastering engineer, because unlike before, you're, you're, you know, we're all working with a lot of different uh, clientele. Where maybe in the past you had one or two record labels that supplied you all of your work. You know, I know I know engineers who were a generation before me. You know, they had one client. You know, it was like you know either Geffen Records or RCA Records, and they did all the dance records for that, or all the you know they that was their thing, and that's just what they did. Uh, you know, since. Since the late 90s, the whole industry uh, shifted, you know, far more to independent artists, people putting out their own records. So instead of doing you know, 125 records, you know, from one artist or from one record label a year, I do one record from 125 different artists. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's, that has, I think, helped, you know, get myself a wider group of uh artists of course and i would think that it's it's probably more fun to have that diversity as well and you know it makes you a stronger engineer because you're you're hearing what's what's happening in lots of different genres of music and i'm sure that there's there's skills that you can apply to different genres um you know when, once you're armed with that information right i agree i think so but uh, also there are definitely people who do not like to do that you know they're like they're a metal engineer and that's that's their what they're comfortable with that's the people they relate to or they're a hip-hop guy or a classical person uh and they don't like to really veer off for whatever reason and that's fine if uh i have no problem with you know whatever you find that works for you but for me as i mentioned i i really love the fact that i could come in and do, especially nowadays where you're not just doing a full length record every day. Uh, you know, so many people are doing singles and EPs or I may come in and do a couple dance songs. Then I'm doing a couple metal songs and then I'm doing a couple, uh, you know, indie rock songs. And, you know, that's all in a day. It's just, <laughs> it really keeps me on my toes because you can't just get into a specific groove you know of you have to really like clear your mind clear your palate yeah you know, forget about you know what whatever chain you think is the the right chain for for these hip-hop tracks absolutely <laughs> so you, you talked about earlier how you got into this as a musician and that was your goal but then things changed and you ultimately went to to full sale but what ultimately made you go the engineering route like what what made you decide that like that was the new path to follow instead of just continuing on with pursuing it as a musician? 
truthfully, uh, all I ever wanted to do was be, you know, a guitar player in a, in a rock band. And when I was doing that, since I was a kid, I mean, I was a hundred percent in, you know, to a fault where, you know, I took it so serious at such an early age, but what happens in a band is you have to rely on other people and artists are generally not reliable people by nature. <laughs> so what, what had happened time and time and over again was that we would get close and then somebody quits and you got to start over. Uh, and the final straw for me was I had the, the last band that I was really working with. Uh, we had a demo together. Everyone in the band was known from these other bands. We had a record label uh, offer us a deal. They offered to move us down to New York for X amount of time, pay for everything. Everything was taken. It was like literally like this was my dream come true. <laughs> and I still remember the day, you know, getting this call from the other guitar player in the band. And then I called my sing the singer for the band to tell him. And he was quiet. And I was like, did you, did you hear me? Did you hear what I said? This is it. This is it. And he's like, yeah, um, yeah my girlfriend's pregnant. And I was like, okay, you could still do this. But basically he pulled out and. You could argue that he didn't actually. Yeah. Bad joke. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I set you up. Uh, I, I left a nice pause there for you. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, and I was just blown away. Like, are you serious? And I, you know, I got to a point in my, you know, I'm in my early twenties thinking like my whole life depends on these people. And I just didn't like it. So I decided, well, I need to be in control of my life. I need to be in control of my quote unquote destiny. And I just thought that if I worked as an engineer, I'd be able to do that, to have a more solid nor quote unquote, nor little did I know, you know, uh, I, I just would be a little bit more in control of my life. Yeah. So that's what I leaned into. I can 100% relate to that exact story and like had experienced that so many times with all the bands <laughs> I was in. And yeah, that's ultimately right? like ultimately what got me into the engineering side of things as well. Cause I was just like, I'm tired of starting bands and being super passionate only to have someone back out. And then you're just like, okay, well, I guess I'm starting over again. So right. um, yeah. So was, was mastering always the thing for you at that point then? Or did you plan no. to be like, mix? Okay. I just figured I, I would want to, I wanted to be like a producer engineer. You know, I still wanted to be the guy to make all the decisions. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I learned about what mastering was when I was at Full Sail. And I remember being in, uh, we were in one of the big Neve rooms and uh, Mr. Jones puts up this mix that he did for Prince. And I'm like, you know, everyone's like, oh, my God, this is going to be amazing. And, uh, you know, it sounded really good. But I was like, well, I don't even need to be a jerk. <laughs> like, it, it doesn't sound like it doesn't have that thing. It doesn't sound like when I put, you know, Purple Rain on. Like, that sounds like, in, you know, it's like a magical experience. Like, well, it hasn't mastered yet. And nobody at that point knew what the heck he was talking about. 
So he explained it, and I'm like, ah. And so that planted a seed, and I also thought that this is a really interesting thing for someone with my personality, someone who wants to get that final project, wants to be, you know, get the, everything perfect. You know, like when I sit and listen to a record and I get that feeling like I did when I was a kid, which I st still get, like that's the experience I wanted to have every day. Uh, that was what put it in the back of my mind. But when I started off and moved to New York City, I was, you know, doing, you know, the whole thing. I started off as an intern, making coffee and worked my way up. And then along the way, I realized how much I just couldn't stand engineering for other people. Uh, unless I was, you know, involved in the creative process. When I, in the beginning, you're just sitting there and people just tell you what to do. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I didn't get in the music industry to be told what to do. I, you know, uh, so I thought I just found it really boring, really fast. And I produced a few things. Uh, and then just, just different opportunities presented themselves. Uh, and one opportunity was a studio that I worked at was owned by a record label that was bought by RCA records at the time. And they invested a bunch of money and we were going to build a big studio. And my boss is like, you've been here the longest. You've worked your way up from the coffee boy. So I'm going to have two rooms. I'm going to have a mixed room and a mastering room. You can have your choice of which you're going to head up. So I went home that night and I said, you know, I got to make a choice. And I, I knew there was, you know, there's not a right or wrong, but I just thought that the mastering choice was fit my personality, fit how I like to work, uh, how I like to live my life. I didn't like waiting around for people, you know, till three in the morning. Uh, so I went in the next morning and I told him, yeah, I want to head up the mastering room. And, uh, you know, I had just, I haven't looked back. I just made that decision. Like, that's what I'm going to do. Love that. Yeah. I mean, mastering is definitely one of those fields where, I mean, yeah, you're not, you're not dependent on the musicians being there. You're not dependent on them like performing their tracks properly. Like there's a, there's a, there's a nice, there's a nice comfort zone there with mastering where it's like, People are just giving you what they got and then you make it sound better. So definitely like for certain personalities, that's that's definitely a really good fit. Um, you know, otherwise th there are the people that want to be really hands on and all that. And mixing and engineering is definitely a great spot for that. Um, but uh, and that's that's one of the nice things that I like about this podcast is that like, you know, interviewing different people, you kind of see the different personalities and how well they they fit in different areas. Um, so so now you, you've been mastering for years. You've got your own space. Um working on tons of records. I'd, I'd love to dive into your process a little bit there and, and what that involves. Um, so when, when you're starting a new project, let's say someone gives you a track, like what's your mindset going into it? Like what are the, some of the first steps you're taking typically with a, a new mastering project? The first step is to just clear my head, get in here and just listen to the song and not think, not try not to come up with any preconceived idea. Like what, what I mean by that is when I was, you know, years ago, I would, know about a project i was going to do say the next day and i get all hyped up and i'm going to do this and i'm going to do that and it's going to sound like this and it starts to influence how you work without ever hearing the material and you can you you know you can color your 
opinion. So I just want to clear my head and listen. You know, nothing's in the chain. I'm just listening to the mix. I'll take a couple notes of what I think I would like to hear more of. Or if I, if I notice right away, like, oh, man, I can't hear the kick drum. And then I think, okay, why am I not hearing the kick drum? Am I not hearing it because there's so much other sub information? Or is it because it just, it's a trio and they just, you know, the, the snare is just 6 dB louder in ratio. And I got to figure that out. So I'll make a couple notes. And then, uh, you know, then I, you know, I basically I'll, for the most part, I will take the file into my analog console. Uh, that's, that's my default. Unless somebody, I do have specific clients who like, they want to stay digital and that's fine. I'll just, you know, I'll do the same thing, but I'll just work with my digital components. Uh, but yeah, I just start listening and, uh, I, you know, I do what I just said and then I'll, I'll make sure that the, the level of the track is kind of, you know, in the ballpark of what I want. Cause that's going to affect how you perceive the low end and in the rest of it. So I, and I'm thinking, okay, now that it's in the ballpark, yeah, this, I, I don't hear the kick, <laughs> you know? So I'll start, you know, putting, uh, yeah, I'll put an EQ in and just try to mold that. Uh, and then I just go, I think in macro terms, you know, I think a low mids highs, you know, get basically the song, you know, in it, what I consider kind of like linear, you know, like flat where everything sounds, in my opinion, you know, balanced properly or, you know, at least close. So once I have it close in a macro sense, then I can start fine tuning things like, yeah, it's okay. Everything sounds right. The vocals in the pocket. Uh, I had, a, I had to build the low hang cause there wasn't any, but now that's, you know, coloring It's coloring the, the snare is coloring the vocal. So maybe I got to split the difference there, or maybe I got to add some EQ to the snare and or vocal. And I just start going down the line until I'm, <laughs> until I'm happy or the clients happy. That makes sense. So it's, it's typically, I mean, uh, just at least from what you described there, you know, EQ volume and then EQ are your, your kind of go-tos. Um, where does compression come into play for you in the mastering process? If at all, I think I use compression a lot less than people would imagine. A lot of uh, people who don't know a lot about mastering, or you know, they, that's not what they do. They're always assuming, or often assuming, that there's a lot of compression involved. Uh, and especially in today's world, where people expect things so loud, it's. It's and people just mix a lot again. There's I'm generalizing and everyone's different, but in general, I don't need to do a lot of compression. And what I mean by that is you would, you know, you're not going to see my if you looked at my, for example, my manly very mute, it's not like you're going to see two or three uh, dB of compression. It's like maybe peaking at a dB, you know, and that's that's kind of a lot in general. Uh, but to answer your question. I have to get the EQ close before I can really make accurate decisions with the compressor. For example, if the mix has way too much bottom end, and I'm, I mean, just hearing like this is really murky because there's so much sub frequencies. 
I think you, you don't want to, you can't really put a compressor on it be, yet because if you do, the threshold of that compressor is going to get uh, hit by the low end. So it's going to start working and it's not even going to touch the rest of the song. So unless you're an engineer who says, I'm going to use this compressor to compress, well, if I'm going to use a compressor to push that low end into, into order, I don't think that way generally. I'm going to, I'm going to use the EQ to get it close. Mm-hmm. And then once I have it close, then I'll use the compressor because I want a compressor to work in concert with the whole song. Uh, there's a lot of times I hear the pumping in the low end on, on certain things. And then the vocals out of control, or it's not, it doesn't doesn't really feel like it's part of the mix, you know. Yeah, there's always that debate of you know EQ b- before or after the compression, and I think the the argument that you made there is a perfect reason for doing it after or having compression after EQ, um, because yeah, you're right. On but- a mix, yeah, I, you know, on a mix, nine times out of ten, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, there are certain times where I might get exactly where I want, and I'm like, you know what, it just needs a little. A little touch of compression now, but yeah, ninety percent of the time, I, I need to hear how the song is reacting dynamically, you know, and work. It's kind of it's got to kind of work before I put the compressor on. Makes sense. Yeah. Are there any other tools in your chain that you typically like to incorporate, like any sort of like uh, saturation effects or anything like that that you like to, or harmonic enhancement that you like to add? I'm not really. Uh, you know, it's, I had this amazing buzz audio EQ and it has some really cool saturation effects, but I'm very, I'm very hesitant to, to add a lot of things that just color the mix because generally I just, I, I'm very respectful of the product that comes in. Uh, so most people just want what they gave me to be balanced, right? So that it sounds the way they hear it in their head. Uh, now if someone's in the room with me and they say, you know, we really want to muddy this up. It's too clean. It's too pretty. Uh, I might use the saturation on the buzz. I, I might also use my, uh, Animat tape, uh, machine, which is an amazing box. It's all analog, but it does legitimate tape modeling. And it actually sounds like a tape machine where most of the tape modeling plugins that I hear, they just sound like compressors. Uh, and it's really cool because I can, I can fine tune it on every single song, how, and how hard I hit it will affect how much it works, just like a typical tape deck. So I'm happy to do any of that stuff, but I just want like to know that the client, you know, the client comes first. So if they're, uh, leaning in that direction or or if i want to do something like that i will tell them or ask them and say here i'm hearing this or i might give them two versions uh and say here here it is with with the saturation here it is without and let them choose because i don't want to be too heavy-handed uh i think a, a way i like to word it is i always remind myself that it's not my record you know when I make Joe Lambert and the hipster record, I can do whatever I want. But someone's coming to me. My job is to make their record sound the way they want it to sound. So I, I'm not trying to put the Joe Lambert stamp on it, per se. 
So I want to make what they gave me sound as, as good as I can. And then along with that, I'm communicating with them. And if I think something's going to work, I'll let them know. Or if they, obviously, if they mention it to me, then, then I'm like, yeah, sure, let's try. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds like you've got a pretty simple chain, but I think that simplicity is the thing that allows you to respect the mixes that come to you and, you know, not mangle them up too much. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, I have every tool known to man that you could think of in here, like everybody else has nowadays. But if you just, you know, if you, if you just listen to the song, yeah, again, there's times where you need a pocket wrench. And then there's a lot of times where I don't. I just need to do a few things to get it just right. And the difference between a few moves, even like today, or with me, I'll be shocked. I'll just be shocked how like one dB on my Sontech EQ, <laughs> like just changes the whole balance of a song. It just like just blows me away. So like I don't have to off. I don't often have to do a lot of different things. Yeah, it's true, and it, it, that's the thing about mastering that I've always found is that you know it's often these tiny increments, like, you know, half a dB, a dB. And a lot of people who aren't very experienced in this would be like, I can't even hear that. But, like, when you actually pay attention to it, or at least when you, like, bypass that that EQ or whatever, you're like, holy shit, that, that, that made a really big difference. And, you know, I, I think some of that has to do with, like, the curves that maybe some of this gear has. Like, you know, like, I was messing around recently with the... Uh, the new Masilek EQ plugin, and and there's also that the the uh, Sontech one as well, and it just blew me away at like how simple and how little you need to do with those plugins to like get them yeah. there. And if you got the analog gear, then you also get that the other mojo that comes along with that too, right? Well, especially the Sontech. I mean, that thing, it it still like shocks me how magical a couple moves can sound, and it is something that a lot of this gear you almost feel like you're supposed to use everything because you paid all this money for it. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I, I'll work with certain uh, younger mastering engineers or someone who's assisting me. And, you know, over the years I've had several people and, uh, you know, I'll let them do their thing and then they'll come in and they may ask my opinion and I'll look over their sheet. And I'm like, man, you've got three compressors, three equalizers. <laughs> like you've got all this stuff that you like, I don't recognize the song. You know, it's like, you, it's, you're, they think like a mix engineer. And that's, that's the thing too, is it's a very different job. It's a very different way of listening to the song, which of is course. why it makes it so difficult when it's your song, your mix. It's very difficult to uh, disassociate and then be able to master it, you know, with uh, objectively. Of course. Well, yeah, that, that's, that is the big argument for getting a mastering engineer, right? Aside from having someone, obviously, who knows what they're doing in the mastering world. But, like, you know, when having that third party who can just listen to it with fresh ears and offer you that fresh perspective on your mix, I think that's that's crucial. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, we, we talked about how, you know, kind of EQ, volume and EQ tend to be your big things there. Um, and then I'm assuming at the end you probably just finish it off with some sort of limiter yeah, there's generally a, a limiter at, you know, that's the last thing in my chain. What I like to do is I, I, I kind of like to have the master either a hundred percent or very close to it going into my, my pure mix workstation. And then once it's in the computer, 
obviously I can use plugins and, and all that, but I, I, I try to get it exactly as I want. And, and I'll, I'll often do analog moves live. You know, that's one thing I, I like to do is I, I will think dynamically, uh, a lot of mixes now are very, you know, everything's right there. Yeah. So the, the, the chorus, the verse, the intro, everything's the same level. So I will sometimes just work the mix as I'm going. And I, again, I write my notes down and I hear like the verse is the same level as the chorus. Or sometimes, you know, a band will, especially you got a big, loud rock band, big, huge chorus. You know, as a mix engineer, the band, like they'll work all day and getting the chorus exactly they want. And it's got the rate, the compression, everything is set up for that. And it sounds amazing. And then the verse comes after it, and there's half the amount of elements. So your compressor releases, and instead of it working, it actually sounds, the, the, the verse now is too loud because the dynamics have really opened up. And so I, those are things I, like we'll watch as I go along and make sure that the verse sits a little and then, you know, make sure that the, when the chorus comes in, it actually sounds bigger. You know, the song blossoms, mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. I love that. And I try to do them as I go into the, you know, I try to do them live like a mix engineer cause it's just more fun. Yeah. That's, that's the old school analog, like yeah. automation, you know, <laughs> like just, you know, exactly. you have your markers and Hey, if you're only doing like half a DB moves, moves here and there, it's not a big, big thing to remember where to go right right <laughs> love that um so obviously like the the, the topic of uh, when you talk about mastering a lot of people immediately think about like volume and levels and stuff like that um and you know there's all the discussion about like you know luffs and rms and peak and all that kind of stuff ultimately at the end of the day like what kind of levels are you typically aiming for and what, what kind of things are you paying attention to what kind of meters are you paying attention to for that kind of thing well, I have several, several different types of meters and the, the biggest problem is that we don't have an industry standard. It's so it's the wild west as far as level goes. Yeah. They keep getting louder and people ask about the volume lowers. I'm like, yo, man, we lost, <laughs> we lost the war. Okay. It's over. It's like, I can't believe how loud people want me to make certain things. So it's such a problem that basically I have to have a conversation with every client and be like, okay, or, or I'll listen, especially a new client. I'll say, here's where I kind of think you should be. You know, this is kind of like, see, my, maybe it's not like minus eight luffs, but, you know, again, it's their record. If they tell me we want it, you know, DEFCON 5, then that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> uh, because it's their it's their song I, I can talk till i'm blue in the face and say wow this is going to sound better uh but yeah cool joe just slam because that's what we want and i'm like okay so yeah there's the conversations and and sometimes i do different levels for for you know different projects like the, the same band will want different things it's you know just imagine if the radio station in Chicago, the rock radio station had one level. And then if you wanted to play your song on a rock radio station in New York, 
that station played your song 6 dB lower. I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? <laughs> or if HBO was 6 dB lower than Showtime. You know, and my, one of my dear friends, Jeff Friedmiller, who I grew up with and played in a band since we were in 1980, he was one of the guys at Dolby who sets those standards. And I talk to him all the time, like, yo, man, we need a standard. You know, we need a standard for the audio world. And, you know, this is just one of the things that the music industry has really dropped the ball. On. Yeah. Because unless there's, you know, something in place that says, here's the, here's what we're going to let, <laughs> here's where we're going to put it. Uh, there's always going to be someone who just wants it louder and wants it this. And it's just, we're at the level, you know, pun intended now, it's just, it's just silly. You know, mm. some of the things I hear are just, it's just, I can't even believe they get released this way. Yeah. So when you have a service like Spotify or whatever, who's saying, you know, minus 14, that's what we want. Like, but nobody's submitting it at minus 14. And so yeah, that's a great point. When they came out with that, uh, I, yeah, I think their intentions are good. Uh, but it's really confusing again, because they're only one streaming service. They may be the biggest, but they're still only one. And they're the only streaming service that I know of that defaults to that. So if you use Apple, it's going to play exactly as I sent it. If you go to Spotify, it's going to default to the minus 14, but you could turn that off. So it's imagine how it is for the artists who aren't <laughs> on a record label. Even the record labels, you know, when this happened, like, what, are, what, what should we do? Uh, so there was a time uh, where people were like, oh, we got to, you know, we want to master everything at minus 14. I'm like, okay. And then you know, a couple of weeks later, they'd be like, uh, yeah, it doesn't sound as loud. <laughs> I'm like, it's not as loud. That's kind of the point. Yeah. Uh, so, and again, it's, they're not a label. They can change their mind Monday. They can say, you know what? Instead of minus 14, we're going to go to minus 12 or minus 18. So all the, you know, as this started happening and, you know, I would have these conversations with labels and producers and engineers. At the end of the day, the, the producers, all those people I just mentioned, they're like, we're going to have it sound the way we want. Because at the worst case scenario, it's going to sound that way. And it's, it's going to sound right when it's played back, you know, quote unquote, right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's almost like the, um, the CD standard is the standard still, you know, like the people still want level wise. Those, yeah. Level wise. Like people still want, I would those. say we're, yeah, but we're about two DB, something, maybe almost three DB louder than what CDs were in like the mid nineties. Fair. So then like, let's say, let's say you, you don't have an artist who cares about the level. Like what are you personally kind of considering your, your sweet spot that you, you find works best for you or for, or for like translation across all these different platforms? Uh, I think, uh, I think minus 11 loves is like perfect. It's, it's nice and loud, nice and dynamic. That would be my personal preference for a standard. Uh, and that doesn't mean anything to anybody but me. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm generally going to be around 
you know, closer to minus nine on our average record because that's just basically what, you know, what quality records that I hear that come out. Uh, it's kind of where they are. And again, I will almost always have a conversation with someone before I start the project. And if anything, I will, uh, I will err on the side of not loud enough. Because if someone says, yeah, Joe, sounds amazing. Just make it a dB louder. I can do that easily. But if they say, we think you hit it on a dB too hard, then I got to basically start over. And, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, that's the biggest, you know, comment I get. Sounds amazing. Could you make it a dB louder? <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine, too, that just the the mixes that you're getting you know, people are submitting those all at different levels. And maybe that's up, maybe that's where we should have started with this conversation as far as like, you know, how should people be submitting their tracks for mastering? Um, you know, if, should should people be sending you tracks at a certain level? Do you care? Well, if if somebody asks me, you know, what level should we bring it in at? I'll give them my opinion. There, I have a bunch of... Uh, frequently asked questions on my website, you know, at joelambertmastering.com. So you could go there and it'll give you a whole list of, of things to help you prep. But along with that, there's a lot of engineers who they mix loud or they mix quiet and they get the results they want. And I don't want to interfere with that. If, if they think that this is the way they're getting the best results and their client is happy, I'm not going to tell them, oh, you got to resubmit. You know, whatever makes their client happy, I can work. Uh, it is nice when uh, an artist or engineer supplies me with the reference that they have been supplying to the artist. And that's super helpful because then I know what they've heard. Yeah. So if, if the reference comes in and it's like, oh, my gosh crazy loud then i know i gotta make it crazy loud because that's what they've been listening to uh or crazy you know just yeah loud <laughs> if they send me a ref where it's not super loud then i know okay i know where i if i want to push it a little i can but let's see where we end up so yeah it's it's a constant battle it's i'm it's something that we as a company you know my my manager, Diana Zinni, who's been with me for a decade, you know, she knows like everyone we talk to, if it's a new client, like that's just something we have to discuss. You know, if it's an engineer that I work with regularly, yeah, I know where we're at. You know, we've had these experiences just like you and your clients. You know, like, yeah, I know what they want. Yeah, makes sense. As far as like um, your opinions on people adding like bus processing in their mixes, like I'm, I'm assuming that kind of just goes back to what you said there, where it's like whatever works for that that artist is that is that your approach there? Yeah, whatever gives gives them the sound they want. Uh, you know, uh, was it Wednesday? I did a record, and the guy he asked me that. You know, should I do that? Anytime someone doesn't know, I'm gonna. My opinion is going to be try it. You know, it's so easy now with workstations. It takes you five minutes to print one with a compressor and five minutes with one without. I say, you know, send them both to me. We'll we'll sit and listen to them in here, and we'll see what you know which one sounds best. I'll give you my opinion. We'll see which one reacts best to the treatment, 
Uh, so, you know, those are easy things to do, just like uh, vocal up, you know, just mm-hmm. always send a vocal up and a vocal down. It just takes the engineer five minutes to 10 minutes. And, but if you don't do that, and then I get in here and it's Friday and they're like, we need this, we need this single, but the vocal's not loud enough. And I'm like, well, yo, you didn't send me a vocal up. <laughs> so, you know, there's certain, it's not, the, you know, you could save yourself that, that phone call is what I'm saying. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It is really interesting. Like it does seem like these days as much as, you know, people maybe try to implement some sort of standard for, for levels and, you know, all that kind of stuff, like it it doesn't exist. So I think that's why people are pushing their mixes or adding compression or whatever. Like, it's just like people are just trying to get it to sound closer to what they hear wherever. And I think that's why people are just pushing things all the time. Um, and yeah, it is kind of just the wild west to some degree in the digital space right now where like, like you said, like Spotify can change their algorithm tomorrow and they can make things louder. They can make things quieter. So it's like, it's, it's really hard to prepare for that. And like another thing that I, I constantly see popping up in like a lot of mastering forums too, is like, even just like output level. Like I remember back in the day, people would say like, you know, just add a limiter at like minus 0.1 and that was all you needed. And now people are saying like, no, you should have it like at minus three or something like that. What, what, what's your thoughts there? I think you should be careful what you read. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, yeah, there's no solid, always has to be, but as long as you're not clipping, you're okay. Yeah. But it, it, you know, it depends how the song was mixed. If, uh, if you're mixing it really hot or if it's a piece, you could, a rock song, you could basically put them, you know, minus point one and it'll probably, probably in most cases, it's going to sound fine. If it's just a piano, a lot of dynamics and the person wants it really loud you may want to drop that down because it's an unforgiving instrument you know you you will hear the distortion you will hear the clicks and so quickly where on a 40 track song with cymbals and you know keyboards you're not going to hear it so yeah, you just got to pay attention. There's no real rule. Yeah, I generally start. You know, I will start at like minus three, and then you know go between minus three and minus one, depending mm-hmm. on the material. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely, certain instruments are going to be more prone to the artifacts of pushing something really loud. So yeah, it definitely makes sense there. Um, what about like what's your take on the idea of like true peak limiting and and just regular limiters like what what do you tend to use these days i'm using uh what do i i use uh, the dmg limitless which i love uh sometimes i'll also have my uh i have the the old hardware l2 which i really loved uh sometimes i'll just put that uh at the end of the uh the chain right or yeah right before my a to d just so I make sure I'm not hitting the ADD too hard. You know, I could just back it off a DB or so and it, and then I'll use the two together. Uh, there's not a, you know, the thing with limiters is you just got to be careful. Sometimes you can just hear it so much and I just hate hearing, it, you know, and it's, so it took me a long time. You know, I like the, uh, what's it? Fab. That filter? Yeah. 
he, he makes a really nice one. Uh, the L2 just sounds amazing to me. Like I still, like if I don't hit it too hard, like I don't hear it at all. And you know, if you use like the L3 or I'm like, Oh my gosh, this thing is, I don't know what they did there, but, uh, they really got it right with the, uh, L2. Uh, and even the L2 is like one of those ones where, like you said, like you have to hit it right because if you hit it too hard, you're going to lose all your snares and stuff like that. Like that, yeah. that disappears. Yeah. I mean, I never have it at more than a dB and a half. Yeah. So, it, yeah, I'm just basically it's there as a safety blanket. Yeah, for sure. For, for those piano notes. Make, makes sense. Um, as far as like maybe another question I should have asked earlier about how people should submit their tracks to you. Do you care about things like sample rates and what, what rates people use. I care, but there's, you know, once they're, once it's recorded and mixed, that's what it is. So I can work with any of those and there's no reason to take a 44, 24 stereo mix and upsample it to 96 K. You're not getting any benefit. And if anything, you might cause some damage. So I don't worry about it in the sense that most of the uh, digital workstations we're using now and the sample rates are so good. You know, they're you know, 44, 24. It sounds great. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to get carried away with, uh, you know, 192 and it's got to be this and it's got to be that. Like, you know, it, it'll sound, you can make a really great sounding record at any of those sampling rates and nobody's ever walked into a record label with a record and then turned down because it was, you know, <laughs> 44 instead of 48. So, yeah, I feel like the argument that everyone who uses higher sample rates makes is like, oh, it's 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 better quality. It sounds better. But I'm kind of with you. Like, I think that like 44 or 24 sounds great. It, it's it been a standard for a long time and it works. I think 44, 24 to me sounds the most analog. So I really like that. And 48 sounds great, but it's a little extended on the top and certain people like that. And that's cool if they like that. that you know, 88 to 96K in a stereo mix. I mean, you're, you're really splitting hairs. But I think it's great if you use it and you want to record that way. If you're, I think maybe the most important thing is what your computer can handle. Because you're, if you're an engineer and you're in a session and you're trying to run an old computer at 96 24 and your plugins don't work and it's slowing you down. Like that's a huge problem. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to just 44, 24 and everything's running smooth and the, and the musicians are happy. Like that's way more important. Absolutely. I guess like one of the arguments these days would be that like so much of the audio industry has shifted to like, like incorporating video and stuff like that as well. And so, you know, like all these artists are promoting some, themselves on video. And so video is typically 48. So maybe there's that argument there for like, depending on mm -hmm. the medium that you're trying to go to. But, but I, I agree with you. I don't think that it, it doesn't really, it's not going to make or break your record. It's not like no. one, not like one sounds like shit. And one sounds amazing. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what I generally do is I record all my masters are at 96 K 24 bit. This way I save them at a high resolution and I can output them any way you want. Makes sense. Yeah. And I guess a good argument for that too, like saving it at the higher rates for you is that like you're, you're 
you're storing them in their finished version at the highest quality, you know, right. so that, so like later on down the road, if 96 K ever became a standard, then you would, you would have had that already. And right. it's, yeah. So yeah, that makes sense there. Um, how long does it typically take you to master a track? It takes me about 10 minutes to get it 90% there. And then it takes me about 20 minutes to half an hour to second guess myself and double check <laughs> everything. And, you know, is it, especially if it's a single or the first, you know, the first song of a record that I work on takes longer simply because I'm trying a lot of different things. I'm wrapping my head around the sound, the sonic uh, landscape of the, of what what I expect to be doing that day, and so I'm really locked in. And then I might do a couple more songs, and I'm maybe oh okay I hear this this I'm gonna go back to that first song and make an adjustment on this or that, uh, and then as you know if it is a full length and I you know once I'm three or four songs in. You know, my, just mentally, you, you kind of relax, you lock into the room, the day, uh, and I can go a little faster. And it, and it feels like, almost like I don't want to lose it. Like, oh, yeah, that's the sound. There it is. I, you know, I, uh, but yeah, that's generally the, the length of time. But there are certain songs, if I, if I do notice, like I've been listening to this song for 45 minutes and I'm just not happy or just not feeling it. I know I just got to leave the room, leave the room, get a glass of water, do something, go outside. And then I can walk back in the room in 10 minutes later and be like, oh yeah, you know, that's almost inevitable that that's what happens. Like sometimes I just get too close to it, trying too hard, or I'm just, I'm just in the wrong direction. And when I struggle with something, I know I just need to back off, go do yeah. something else for 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, you bring up a good point that I think, um, you, like at the end of the day, when it comes to whether you're mixing or you're mastering, you know, we're trying to make music that ultimately translates and that will work outside of our own studio spaces. And I feel like as a mastering engineer, because you're hearing so many different styles of music, there's a lot of there's a lot of starting points. And so it's, it can be hard to like calibrate your ears to know like, okay, this is going to translate. This is like my, my go, like my target frequency balance that I'm going for, that kind of thing. Um, so are there any tips that you have there as far as helping you with like mixed translation and, and maybe tuning your ears for the day? Do you, do you ever listen to any like reference tracks or anything like that to help you calibrate your ears? There's a couple things I do. First off, as far as monitoring, my level is is set. I never turn it up or down during the day. It's always the same. So, and it's the same every day. So you, that helps me get used to not just how it sounds, but how it feels. Like I know how the low end sounds in here. I know how it should feel. That's a that's a huge help because you know if you turn it up six dB. It's not just louder, like the, the ratio of low end to mid range has now changed. So if you are changing the level of your output, you can, you can, you, it's so easy to get lost. And when I come in in the morning, generally I, I get in here around nine o'clock. 
I'll just put a couple songs on or I'll put a record on that I did recently or just something that I know. And I'm not even really critically listening. It's just kind of in the background while I'm looking at emails and stuff. But even that, it kind of like starts to subconsciously set my brain. <laughs> and then and then I'll just sit in the sweet spot and just sit there and listen to a song or two. And just listen for five, ten minutes. And that helps me relax, helps me focus. And then, you know, the first song or two that I'm working on during the day, I'm going to, yeah, I'll, I'll get it where I think it sits well. And then I'll compare it to something else that I heard earlier in the day, just to make sure I'm not off by a little, because in my world, like if I'm off by a DB, that's a lot. You know, like I can't be, I can't have a record that the whole record's DB too, too much or less. Like it's got to be right on the nugget. So I will sweat the small stuff and just, you know, I, and then I can just listen to a few things and I can lock in pretty good. And yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. So at the end of the day, then like, how do you ultimately know when you're done with mastering a track? Like at what point do you, are you like nailed it? Like this is done, ship it, whatever. <laughs> uh, I think it's just from all the experience and all the things we talked about. You just, it just sounds to me like I go back to the reference or the, you know, the, the flat mix and I listen and I'm like, yeah, I just, I just sounds the way I think it should, for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, and going along with everything else that we talked about, it just, yeah, I think this is right. And ultimately right, wrong. It's just the client's going to let me know. Mm -hmm. So you can't really struggle too much because at the end of the day, your client's going to decide, like, you know what? It sounds great, but I like things to lean a little bright. I like things to lean a little loud. I like things to lean with the vocal. I like the vocal to be a little like weirdly loud, you know? So uh, that's when I know it's done is when the client says, yeah, we're, we're good. Makes sense. So ultimately then at the end of the day for you, like how would you define what makes a great mastered mix? A great mastered mix is just that when you're, when I sit and listen to it or when anyone sits and listens to it, you're not thinking about anything but the song. You're just enjoying it. You know, you can, if you want to focus on the vocal, it's easy. If you want to focus on the kick, it's easy. If you want to focus on any specific element, it's all there for you without being fatigued. And it just has that, that feeling like, you know, you, you get a sense of depth. You just, you're, I feel excited. Like, yeah, this sound, I don't know really how else to describe it. Like it, when I have that feeling where I'm excited, it's just like, oh my gosh, it just, it just sounds so good. You know? Yep. And I want to hear it again. You know, I'm not, you, you gotta want to turn it up. You know, it's gotta, there's those certain songs, you know, that like, you don't really want to turn it up because it's a little strident or it's, something about it's just not perfect and it's just not as you're like yeah i love that song but i didn't i didn't go and hit repeat you know mm. like you i wanted to feel like i want to listen to that song again yeah that's a good point and and i think uh you know it's funny you talk about like 
wanting to turn it up, considering we were just talking about it, like monitoring at the same levels, you know. <laughs> but but I but there's something there's some truth to, to that, which is that like you know when you're into a song, you want to crank it louder, and so you, yeah, you, you want to know that like you want to have a master that that sounds good, loud and quiet, and all you know as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's got to translate. Obviously, like you when when it is balanced well. It just translates. You don't have to worry about it. You know, I, it, it sounds good on my twenty thousand dollars speakers. It sounds good on my my in ears. Like I don't, I don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. It just sounds. You know, it translates well. It's enjoyable on any of those platforms. Makes sense. And I think it. Uh, yeah, maybe that's a perfect spot to wrap up because it, it kind of ties back to what you were talking about earlier, and as far as like you know, listening to to the records in school, and you know being excited about like the print stuff and like, ah, it didn't sound as exciting, you know? <laughs> so exactly. yeah, you've been, you've been on this quest this entire time to get it sounding exciting and uh, get you, get you feeling the songs a lot more. Yeah. It's true. It's like, that is, I still feel like a little kid when I'm listening and working, like, you know, the hair on my arm stands up. It's how like, that's exciting to me. And I, I really, when I don't feel that way, I know something's not right. Fair. Yeah. That's a, uh, it's a good barometer. Sometimes, yeah, fuck luffs and all that stuff. It's just like the goosebump effect, you know? Exactly. <laughs> right on. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It was great to learn more about your process, and and uh, I appreciate your your very detailed answers. And, you know, I think that um, for people who are learning about mastering and wanting to maybe pursue it themselves, I think you gave them a lot of great information. And I also think for people who are like, mastering isn't for me, but I, I know I need to hire someone, I think that from this interview, they're going to be able to understand what goes into it and ultimately how to choose a, a good mastering engineer who's going to help them get the sound that they're after. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. If people want to learn more about you, maybe even potentially work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? You can go to my website at uh, joelambertmastering.com. My email is joelambert at jlmsound.com. Uh, yeah, I'm... I'm happy to talk to people. If you just have questions you want to ask me, feel free to email me. There's all sorts of cool stuff on my website that'll help you if you have questions. Uh, yeah. I'm here. I'm ready to work. <laughs> right on, man. Well, thanks again. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. So that was my interview with Joe Lambert, and I really enjoyed that conversation, and I love how open Joe is about his process, and you can tell that he's very thorough about his workflow and the decisions that he makes throughout the process, and I love that he was able to articulate a lot of that stuff in this episode, because that's the kind of stuff that's super helpful to know, right, to like understand what are they listening for, and you know why would a mastering engineer use compression on one mix, but not on another, that kind of stuff. I love that he broke down that process and, you know, mentioned that there's basically so many different tools that you can and occasionally will use as a mastering engineer. But I think the mark of a great mastering engineer is having the the strength to know when not to use something. You know, sometimes that minimalism is often the most important part of the process. And like he was talking about with like the Sontech EQs, like half a dB or a dB move can make a world of a difference. And that's all you need. But for people who are just like amateurs at this stuff and don't understand the process and they're not, they don't have their ears well tuned, it's like 
you'd feel like you have to add more and more. But like I said, I think the mark of a great mastering engineer is really knowing how to dial it back, how to simplify your process, and just enhance a song, but without going too extreme and radically transforming it. And I can definitely tell from Joe's process that that is exactly his approach there. He doesn't want to mess with songs. He doesn't want it to come back to you sounding completely different. He just wants you to be moved by it when you get it. And so, yeah, I loved learning way more about his process and, yeah, exactly what he's using and his philosophies on stuff. So, Joe, if you're listening to this, thank you once again for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed this and uh, really appreciate it. Learned a lot. Now, to the listeners, I hope that you enjoyed this episode, too. I hope that you learned a lot from it. And if you'd like to hear more episodes like this, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're currently working on music of your own and you're not quite getting it to the standard that you want, yes, mastering is definitely going to help you in that process. But before you get to mastering, the very first thing you need to have is you need to have a well-recorded track, and then you need to edit it properly, and then you need to mix it properly. And if you do all of those three stages to the highest degree, then when you send something off for mastering, it's going to sound incredible. But if you're not sure what steps to be taking in order to get the highest quality results, then that is what I'd love to help you out with. And inside of my coaching program, Amplitude, I work one-on-one with my students throughout the entire process of helping them with their songs so that you can make your song sound just as good as your favorite artist. And in that program, not only do you get a ton of training walking you step-by-step through each of the processes, but you also get personalized feedback on your tracks. So you can send me your mixes and I'll make you a detailed video walking you through any little changes you should make or any considerations you should make. And then I'll send it back to you. You implement those changes and we go back and forth on your tracks until they are sounding the absolute best that they can. And you're 100% thrilled with it. And then from there, we also include mastering as part of this program. So you're really getting a beginning to end solution with your songs and getting a ton of handholding and support and feedback throughout this entire process. So if you're someone who is struggling, you're second guessing your work, and you're not quite happy with the results you're getting, then definitely make sure to look into joining Amplitude. If you visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude, you'll find all the details about the program there. And on the webpage there, you can sign up for a free demo. I'd love to hop on a call with you to show you around the program and to learn more about you and your processes to see how I can help you. And if I truly can help you, then I'd love to invite you into the program. I only work with people who I believe I can help. So definitely, once again, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude if you're interested in getting one-on-one help with your tracks. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. 